Welcome to the Startup of the Year podcast, where each episode we showcase exciting new companies from around the world. This podcast is produced by Established, creators of the Startup of the Year program. Established is focused on helping organizations with their innovation, startup, and communication strategies. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Startup of the Year podcast. I'm Frank Ruber, co-founder and co-CEO of Established, co-founder of Established Ventures, and the team behind the Startup of the Year community and this very podcast, or if you're in podcast land, sometimes you call it the pod, right? We'll call, it, we'll call it the podcast today. But either way, I'm excited to be here and I'm excited you're here with us. On this episode, I'm talking with Rohit Bhargava. He's uh, talked with me previously. I've known him for many years. And uh, he joined us last year at our Startup of the Year Summit. Today, we're going to be talking about his new book, which just came out recently. It's called Beyond Diversity, 12 Non-Obvious Ways to Build a More Inclusive World. Rohit is an uh, innovation and marketing expert and the founder of The Non-Obvious Company. He's also a Wall Street Journal bestselling author of six uh, books, and uh, he teaches marketing and innovation at Georgetown University, the Hoyas down in D.C., so uh, excited to have him joining here shortly, but uh, the book was actually pulled from uh, a bunch of amazing people that he pulled together to host the Beyond Diversity Summit. I also had a chance to participate in that summit, and we uh, pulled together pulled together a session all around investing in um, diverse companies and founders and had some of our startup alumni and, and investors in our network on to join us. So that was uh, a lot of fun. And obviously, I find this uh, topic to be very important given the current state of the world. And uh, I'm excited to announce to our listeners that today, if you go out there and you're listening right now, um, when this if this is the week that uh, this just came out, um, you can get the uh, Kindle edition of the book for 99 cents over on Amazon. And uh, that's a pretty pretty good deal. I think generally the uh, got the book right here. It, it's a uh, let's see where does it say the book price? I don't see it. It's probably about a twenty dollar nineteen ninety five dollar or nineteen ninety five for the book regularly. So ninety nine cents is a pretty good deal. And uh, if you want to go check it out on Amazon, you can also grab a copy and, and leave a review. I know it would uh, mean the world to Rohit, and uh, we'll we'll drop a link for the Amazon uh, way to buy it on Amazon in the show notes. So go check that out. All right, before we jump into the, the interview, though, I want to talk a little bit more about the Startup of the Year Summit, which is fast approaching. We're six weeks out, if you can believe it. Uh, we're going to be heading down to uh, sunny and warm Tampa, Florida, January 25th through 27th of uh, 2022. And we've got our local host and partner, Embark Collective, down there that's helping us out on the ground and, and acting as the host committee. If we were, uh, like, like if the Startup of the Year is the Olympics, they're the host committee. And uh, we've also got a title sponsor, ReliaQuest, which is really helping us uh, pull this all together. We appreciate their support. Uh, We're currently scheduling some really great activities for all the attendees. Uh, We expect uh, to really create and and, and build lasting relationships down there. So uh, we've got a a bunch of amazing, notable characters. We're going to have 100 startups from our Startup of Year community. Um, We've got hundreds of investors as well attending. They'll be doing uh, mentoring. Some of them are going to be giving talks. And uh, it's going to be a great event. So just to share a few, we've got uh, Jeff Vinnick, the owner and uh, of the back-to-back Stanley Cup champion, Tampa Bay Lightning. He's going to give a keynote. Uh, we've got Mac Conwell from Rare Breed, Rare Breed Ventures. Uh, we've got Blake Hall of ID.me. We've got Jen Lim of uh, Delivering Happiness. She's going to talk about her new book, which is also a best-selling book, uh, as well as uh, Amy Beckley, uh, who's from 
MDF Fertility, which actually makes the product called Prove. You can actually get it at, at uh, Target and other places. Um, as well as Mert uh, Isari, who I hopefully didn't say his name incorrectly, uh, of Math Venture Partners. He's the co-author of a new book coming out soon called Exit Right, which will teach everyone about how to get out when you're in startup land uh, in the proper way. And also uh, Cooper Harris, who's a uh, who's from Clickly. She's also an established venture portfolio company, and we're excited to have her down there. Cody Bardo, another uh, alumni of the of the program and community from Trust and Will, and uh, he's doing some great things there. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, a bunch of new companies and, and a bunch of more uh, of our alumni. So it's gonna be a lot of fun. Uh, the companies, the t- 100 companies from this year will be uh, all pitching and engaging with mentors and investors and expanding their um, global recognition as well as you know, vying for a shot of being the startup of the year. We'll have some other awards as well. And we're also looking to uh, invest in some of the companies that are down there. So exciting stuff. Um, we've got the uh, People's Choice, which is gonna be presented by ReliQuest as well as well as uh, $50,000 in potential investment in some of the companies. We also want to thank UBS Financial Services for supporting the uh, summit as a scale-up level lunch and session sponsor. Uh, UBS is a global wealth management group with operations in Tampa, where they are well known in the uh, Florida family office community, as well as working with early stage startups on family office investor strategies. Um, We value their participation and we want to thank you, UBS Financial. We're looking forward to working with you down in Tampa at the summit. We hope that some of our listeners and some of our community can join us down in Tampa as well. You can go out and register over at summit.startupofyear.com and we'll circle back with more details. All right, let's jump into that interview with Rohit Bargava. We're going to be talking about Beyond Diversity. All right, welcome back, Rohit. So great to see you again and have you here on the podcast on the heels of your latest book, Beyond Diversity. 12 Non-Obvious Ways to Build a More Inclusive World. Welcome back. Thank you. It's always uh, it's always fun to talk to you. So what, uh, is this book number six or seven? I've lost track. You've just been uh, a production <laughs> machine. Yeah, this is number eight, believe it or not. Uh, eight? So, uh, wow. Yeah, production machine is right. That's amazing. Congrats. That's, that's awesome. So, all right. So we're going to dive right in, you know, and talk about this book. It's a really interesting um, book because you came about it in a, in a really rather unique approach to, to writing a book. Can you share a little bit more how this is uh, different than your other books? Yeah, it's uh, it's different in a lot of ways, but I think um, the first way is that the book was really inspired by a virtual summit that we held earlier this year, which was all about diversity and and kind of imagining a more inclusive world, but it really exploded into something much bigger than we thought it was going to be. So the intent of that summit, we called it the Non-Obvious Beyond Diversity Summit, was to bring together you know a dozen really smart people to talk about uh, diversity and inclusion. And what it ended up turning into was a five-day event with 50 panels and 200 speakers. And, and you were one of them, you know, uh, bringing your insights and talking about diversity in the world of entrepreneurship and, and funding. But we had so many different topics across these sessions. I mean, we talked to VCs, entrepreneurs, business owners, casting directors, um, authors of children's books, uh, people in the publishing industry, people in public health, uh, government officials, so many different perspectives. And, And what the summit inspired us to do is to try and find a way of bringing all of these voices together in a way that wouldn't create all these silos in the world of diversity, which is kind of what had been happening um, in in a lot of different ways. And so we wanted to create an inclusive book about being inclusive. (laughs) Um, And that's sort of what inspired the book. Yeah, that's really great. And, you know, if you just kind of peruse the contents of the book, you know, you've got a number of different areas where 
you know, if you are a startup founder, entrepreneur, you know, or just, you know, in the technology area, you know, there, there's a fo whole focus of chapter on technology and another one on entrepreneurship, but there's also, you know, covers family and culture and workplace and um, leadership and government and things that, you know, kind of touch everyone. So I think it's really, a, um, from that perspective, it, this book could be for anyone. And I think that's really interesting. And, um, and there you go, talking about, you know, being able to pull out, you know, not just be in a silo. I think you've done it with this book because of the fact that you, it covers so many different great um, angles. And so what I was interested in, in understanding, like what you you know found most interesting from writing this book. Like, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a 200 something page book. I'd love to hear kind of your, your take on what you thought was most interesting. You know, for me, I think that one of the things that I've always felt, but never really had a good way of articulating was the, the business benefit of diversity and inclusion. I mean, I always felt like it was the right thing to do. I, I've believed uh, for a long time, and I think a lot of people do, that we should treat people fairly. We shouldn't judge them based on their identity or their color of their skin or where they grew up. We should give everybody a, a fair chance and, and create an equitable uh, culture for everyone to succeed. And, and that's sort of a moral argument. And I think it's true. And I think it's important. But what I realized in the process of writing this book was just how much bringing diversity and inclusive thinking into an organization, whether it's a huge company or a you know, two-person startup, how much that is a competitive advantage. Uh, and how much it could be a competitive advantage in terms of helping you come up with products no one else is imagining, helping you think of brand new audiences for products that no one is currently serving. And we saw this over and over again. And so for me, the biggest takeaway was that diversity and inclusion is not just this nice to have thing that only minorities should care about or companies should care about because it makes them look good. Uh, it's a thing that we should think about as a competitive business advantage. And that was something we really leaned into in the book. And I think hopefully got across in terms of the opportunity that it offers. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it really is uh, a competitive advantage and one that people don't know about. So I'm glad that you're bringing it to the forefront here. And, um, you know, with, with this book and obviously with the, the, the backing of, of 200 something people, right. That you've talked to yeah, um, that, are, that yeah. are part of the book. So that's really interesting. All right. So let's dive a little deeper here with the sections that I think, you know, probably would make the most sense for our audience. Now I did mention there are other sections that probably would as well, but for the, you know, we don't have, a, uh, we don't have time to go through every section. So let's just go into technology. Uh, and then we'll, we'll talk about entrepreneurship. So starting with technology, um, you know, there, what are some of the things we need to think about when it comes to diversity and inclusion that maybe people aren't thinking about right now? Well, I think that there, I mean, let's start with what I think people are thinking about because it's, you know, it's it's important enough that it's on the radar for people. And I think there's two big things in, in technology that we found. The first is uh, the diversity of the people who are creating the technology. So recruiting um, is a big, big focus for uh, diversity and inclusion in technology. Uh, technology companies are trying to recruit more women. They're trying to recruit more people of color. Uh, they're trying to be more inclusive, many of them. So that's kind of one lens that a lot of people are thinking about. And the other is algorithmic bias, which has been a huge topic of discussion in terms of these biases that are baked into the tools and algorithms that we consistently use. And so we wanted to talk about both of those things but we also wanted to just talk about the upside, right? Because both of those are sort of 
a little bit negative, right? It's technology is not inclusive enough, so we need to hire more people or algorithms are biased, so we need to fix that. But there's an upside of technology as well when it comes to these amazing tools that we can create to help build that world. So you think about the potential for VR or, um, or AI to help us develop empathy for people who aren't like us. And there's, you know, probably many of your listeners would be familiar with some of the, the experiences you can have where you can literally put on this headset and experience how you are treated if you had a different identity. And it's a very deeply emotional experience to do that because you can literally see how someone is mistreated or what microaggressions feel like. Uh, on a feeling-based level. So we wanted to talk about the challenges with technology, but also the huge opportunity that technology gives us to be able to create this world that we're talking about. Wow, that's really interesting. I, I hadn't heard about that. I mean, I guess it does start to kind of flow into that whole discussion around, you know, meta. Why is meta so important with the whole Facebook trying to build this other area for people to go into? Never thought about how um, you could basically be anyone and not be, um, you know, have bias uh, against you. So that's pretty interesting as well. All right, let's dive in a little bit deeper on um, the, the algorithmic bias. Is there a way to combat it? Like, I mean, you mentioned that putting out a VR headset, but what other ways can, can we kind of be conscious about that? Well, so one of the fascinating things that, that we learned when we started digging into algorithmic bias is that a lot of times people put the blame on the algorithm itself. Uh, instead of looking at the process for how that algorithm was actually developed and the uh, data set that it was essentially trained on, right? I mean, that's how a lot of algorithms get smarter over time. As anybody who's done technology knows, you you train it based on a data set. And when you give it right. a uh, myopic data set, when you give it only one way of seeing individuals or only one type of media to be trained on, you run into dangerous things, right? I mean, there's all of these missteps in the past. I think it was Microsoft that created a chat bot and they trained right. it based on what people were saying on Twitter. And like, right. that didn't go well. Right? Oh, it's terribly wrong quickly. Like, <laughs> yeah, because yeah, people are assholes on Twitter, right? Um, right. right. And they're racist. And, and so that's part of the challenge, right? Like we have to be able to say, what are we training these algorithms mm -hmm. on and who's actually behind the development of it instead of saying, oh, that algorithm is bad. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that we found, which was really interesting is, Part of the challenge and part of the blame has to rest on the organizations that are blindly using these algorithms and letting them make decisions um, instead of intervening with some sort of human who has a capacity to see whether those decisions and those choices are, uh, are biased in some way. And we have one example in the book that we talk about of uh, credit scores and Apple got into a lot of trouble and there was a big backlash uh, when the Apple card came out because... <clears throat> credit scores that were being algorithmically uh, determined and therefore the credit limits that were being given were very different between males and females who were married jointly reporting their taxes. The males would get a much higher credit limit uh, and credit score and the females would get a much lower credit limit and credit score even though they had shared finances. And multiple people including Steve Wozniak himself called this out and said hey this is you know biased. And algorithmically, Apple was like, well, it's the algorithm, right? Which you could blame the algorithm or you could say, hey, Apple, you need to do a better job to actually make some choices here instead of just blindly trusting an algorithm. Yeah. Garbage in, garbage out, sounds like, is, is where these yeah, guys yeah, really. are from. Interesting. Really. And and then, I mean, obviously, that kind of makes me think immediately of the 
gender gap when it comes to to pay in the you know the workplace as well. There's a gap there. Um, there's yep. a gap in funding. We, we're going to talk about entrepreneurship here in a, a minute, but um, it's really interesting. So. Um, are there any other areas in technology we should be thinking about? I mean, I, I think the book mentioned facial recognition as another one, other, other bias, areas of bias that we should be aware of as we're kind of building products or thinking about um, using technology. Yeah, I think that uh, it's also sort of a, a testing bias. So it's the people developing the technology, but then also like who's the set of people that it's tested on. I mean, there was a famous, it's a notorious example of the original designers of the seatbelt. Uh, and how all of the testing, 100% of the testing on seatbelts is obviously done with crash test dummies, but the crash test dummies are based on male body form. And so these seatbelts that were originally developed and for years and years and years, literally up until you know the last couple of decades, uh, were designed for men. And men were much better protected by seatbelts uh, than women were because they were never tested on crash test dummies based yep. on female form. And that's one of those things that's been just longstanding for decades and decades and decades. And it's not even a technology thing. It's just the choice of who's testing out this product that we made to make sure that it's effective. That's really interesting. I mean, that one makes me think about, um, well, yeah, that, that's just wild that we've been using the same technology forever and it hasn't been reinvented to kind of focus on the fact that there's also um, not just men driving cars. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and then on, on top of it, the one that always gets me is, you know, children, like we, we all, how many car seats have you bought in your lifetime uh, and had to like strap in and strap out. And yet, you know, it feels like the whole industry is, is not thinking about the fact that everyone has children at some point, right? That's how we yeah. reproduce, right? Like they're going, it's going to happen. Families are going to happen. And like, especially like cars focused on families should have safety devices built in. How's that not possible? Like, it's crazy. Yeah, so, exactly. It gets, exactly. It gets me. It gets me. But uh, okay, so let's keep moving here. Um, so let's switch gears and talk about, um, you know, entrepreneurship, which is another area that I thought would be really relevant to our audience. So uh, in the book, you know, we, you talk about the lack of funding and I actually participate in a, a session at the, the conference you mentioned focused on that. And, you know, there is this lack or, of, of funding to women and minorities uh, run businesses. Um, which is interesting because there's actually statistics that show that female founded uh, or companies that have female founders perform 36% or sorry, 63% better than teams that have all male founders. And that's first round capital has some data out there about that. So I um, want to talk about this, this funding situation and, and what, uh, what entrepreneurs should be thinking about and what investors should be thinking about. Well, I think the first thing that we found was uh, that it isn't entirely a meritocracy. You know, and that's what we like to think when it comes to funding. The best ideas get funded. The best business plans uh, get discovered. And actually, there is much more of the dealing that happens through business networks where the you know, large percentage of the deal, so to speak, is already made uh, on the golf course or somewhere else that's outside of that business meeting, outside of that pitch meeting. And that unfairly... Uh, discriminates against those people who aren't invited to that golf course, who aren't part of that conversation, who aren't at that networking event. And so one of the things that we uh, found over and over again from people was that if we want to create a more equitable way for women or minorities or people who don't typically get uh, as easy access to funding to get it, uh, the first thing we've got to do is change the demographic and uh, identity makeup of the people who are making the decisions for the funding. 
Because a lot of times what happens is the people will fund ideas that are targeted to people like themselves uh, and led by people who look like themselves. Uh, and it's not because they're racist, it's because they're human. Um, and humans tend to gravitate towards people who look and, and have shared experiences kind of like them. It's the same reason why in the medical profession, uh, they often find that people prefer to have a doctor who is of the same ethnicity um, or gravitate towards that in many cases because uh, there's a shared um, identity there. And so we can't really tackle this big challenge of creating a more equitable way for more entrepreneurs from diverse backgrounds to get funded unless the funders themselves, the people working at the VC firms are more diverse. Yeah. And that's really interesting because it, it actually kind of lines up right into, you know, hiring, right? So how do you tackle, um, you know, diversion or sorry, uh, diversity and inclusion in when it comes to hiring people to ultimately then make that change? Yeah. I mean, part of it is uh, there's some fascinating research around how there are certain trigger words in job ads specifically that uh, don't seem like they seem innocent when they're used, but they tend to be warning flags or triggers that cause uh, women or people uh, of color not to apply at all. Wow. And, um, and there's a really awesome tool called Textio, uh, Text.io, that's basically an augmented language app. And what it does is it takes any job ad that you've written and it searches through it for words that you've used that might unintentionally uh, turn some groups off or cause them to believe that, that job's not for them and suggests alternative words that you could use instead. And so like, that's just a really simple way. And, and one of the things we tried to do in this book is give people really simple, real tactical, actionable ways to have an impact on the question you just asked, which is how do we recruit more diversely? Well, one way is by fixing the language in your job opening descriptions. Wow, that's a great nugget of, of, that you just shared. So Text.io is a great tool that you could use to kind of change those, those uh, descriptions and, and take out any words that might you know, make somebody not apply. And that's really interesting. I had never heard of that before. So thank you for sharing that. Anybody that's hiring should be doing that. So go check that out right away. Um, and I, you mentioned actionable, making this actionable. And it's, I think one thing I pulled out of the book was every chapter has a page that is almost like the cliff notes of the chapter, which is super helpful for anybody that, you know, read the book and now wants to think about what did, what did I gather from that? And, you know, what, you, what needs to happen, what you, what you can do. And then I liked that conversation starter section, um, you know, and, and especially like the entrepreneurship one is starts with something like consider the stores or businesses that you buy from regularly, what, um, what do you, what could you do to seek out and buy from more diverse businesses? I mean, aside from, you know, buying everything online from Amazon, what else can you do? Right. So, um, yep. that's really interesting. Uh, and a conversation story may bring some of these up, uh, over the, uh, the holidays <laughs> to, and to, for some good, uh, conversation with family to see, see what people think and how they react. So thank you for sharing those. And, um, so let's keep moving here. So what other things, um, can entrepreneurs and investors, um, think about when it comes to diversity and inclusion? Well, I think the other thing is to uh, stop minimizing markets that you don't understand or that you're not personally a part of. Right. Uh, and we see this on, on multiple levels. I mean, just to take another lens of the world of diversity and inclusion that often isn't talked about, look at ageism, right? The idea that so often 
there's this entire demographic of people over 50 or over 60 or over 70 that have money that need products and that are never marketed to and are never seen as a ideal target audience uh, for some strange unknown reason. Uh, and part of it is because the people making those decisions, the people, and look, I come from the world of marketing and, and advertising, right? I used to work in marketing agencies, as you know, right. and you know, that's a, that's a young man in a young woman's game. Mostly. I mean, there are a mm -hmm. few people over 40, um, you have very few over 50 and I don't know, maybe just the, the founder, uh, would be over 60 and that's it. Right. So, you know, there is this kind of uh, blind spot. I think when it comes to the marketing and advertising industry around uh, older people and the only place where they're really focused on um, ironically and stupidly is uh, pharmaceutical marketing, right? So all pharmaceutical marketing is like, you know, you could have uh, you know, restless leg syndrome or whatever the, you know, whatever the yeah. thing is that they're trying to promote, ask your doctor. Right. Right. Um, that's the only place where we see older people. Um, and it's unfortunate because um People over 50 are taking vacations and uh, and buying lots of stuff and trying new products and using technology and uh, checking out the latest device and buying an aura ring. And, you know, I mean, they're doing all of those things right. and yet we don't ever see them uh, featured. So there's some real blind spots in terms of target audience. And one of my favorite examples of that was uh, every motorcycle brand you think about like Harley Davidson or Triumph or Ducati uh, for decades, all of their marketing was solely focused on men. They would show beautiful women in bikinis. They put them next to a motorcycle and they would tell the men looking at that ad, if you had that motorcycle, a woman who looked like that would be interested in you. That was basically the marketing. Right. And then about a decade ago, these brands started to realize that maybe women might like to ride motorcycles. And now the fastest growing demographic for an audience and consumer for motorcycles is women. And for a long time, they didn't market to women at all. And that's 50% of your market. Yeah, imagine so, that. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, exactly. So crazy. like you think about, you know, that same question for any entrepreneur listening or any business owner listening is like, what 50% of the market are you just absolutely ignoring right ignoring, now? Because you're yeah. not even imagining they would use your thing. Right. That's really interesting. Yeah. So don't be blind, blind. Don't put the blinders up. I think that's a really good point. And let's talk about the future. Like what, you know, there's a whole section on the future what are some of the things that we can do, you know, collectively as a society to kind of help, um, you know, keep the ball moving forward with um, diversity and inclusion across the board? So, you know, this is one of my favorite topics. I mean, I spent yep. a lot. Yeah, that's of why I wanted time. to bring it up. I knew this is yeah. your sweet spot for. Yeah, your yeah, totally. Passion. You know, and, and I um, and this book was interesting because it allowed me to take a deep dive into something that I'm not necessarily known for. Right. Like people don't think of me as the diversity and inclusion guy. I'm not the DEI, the diversity, equity, and inclusion expert. Uh, but I am an expert in helping people to see the world differently. I mean, that's what I've done through the non-obvious company and all of the stuff and all the other books and things that I've written. And diversity and inclusion is a, such a huge element of that, because if you have a diverse team, if you're more inclusive, you come up with better ideas. You know, there's real business benefit to doing that. So this book was almost like a prequel to a lot of the stuff that I've done around trends in the future. And when we thought about the future, one of the things that, that really stood out for me was just how much there is a, an whole ecosystem of people imagining the future that are uh, diverse minded in how they're doing it. And so, you know, I read a lot of futurists. I read the work of a lot of futurists and futurists imagine what the world could be 
you know, and there's a, there's a little bit of an overlap between futurism and science fiction, right? Because science fiction writers imagine a world that could be, and then futurists sort of predict what might happen for that world to come about. What might happen for us to eventually have hoverboards or whatever the thing is that the science fiction world imagines. And I remember there was a quote from the book um, from a professor at Yale uh, named uh, C. Brandon Ogbono. And he said, futurists ask what tomorrow's hoverboards and flying cars are made of. Afrofuturists ask who will build them. And I thought that's such a fascinating way of thinking about the future because it's not just what's the cool technology that's going to be built, but you know, who's behind it? Like who's going to be building it? And what does that mean? I mean, one of the things we dug deeply into uh, in the futurism chapter was urban planning and just the infrastructure of how things are built. And one of the stories that we really told and focused on is this notorious story of an urban planner from the 60s named Robert Moses, who came up with all of these plans for cities where he intentionally built bridges that were lower to prevent buses from taking lower income people to certain parts of town that were meant to be more upscale, like beaches and beachfront property. And oh, wow. those bridges, and, and, you know, he literally said in interviews, he's like, if I build a bridge that's this height, you're not going to change that. That's going to be there for decades. And that was the level of like thinking that went into what is now called and described as infrastructural racism. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, a future topic, even though it happened decades ago, because it's still affecting us today. And the choices we make today are going to affect people decades from now. And so that was the sort of thing that we tried to talk about in the futurist chapter. Wow, that's crazy. And I, I mean, that could happen again. I mean, hopefully it doesn't, but it's little things yeah. like that, that they aren't little. I mean, there's little known, I guess you could say. And um, that's the kind of stuff I'm glad you're bringing to the forefront so that it doesn't happen again. And we can obviously make sure that there's, um, you know, diversity uh, across the board. People, you know, aren't being, it sounds like he's literally was putting up walls around cities, you know, and yeah. uh, not, you know, not letting folks in, which is crazy, uh, but really interesting for you to bring that up. And, and obviously it being uh, something that happened way in the past. So um, we can learn from that. And so, all right, what was your, you know, we're going to about time, bad time here. So I want to kind of wrap with like your favorite, um, you know, thing you've written a lot of books now, eight of them. Uh, what was your favorite thing or about this book, maybe the process or, or part of it that kind of stands out the most to you? Well, I mean, one thing we didn't uh, really talk about too much until now is I have an amazing co-author for the book um, named okay. Jennifer Brown, who is a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert. Mm -hmm. And aside from her, we also have six contributors to the book who all lent their voices throughout the writing process. We brought in eight sensitivity readers uh, to read the book cover to cover and help us find our blind spots in terms of the way we were using language or what we were presenting. And then we have, uh, as, as we talked about before, 200 voices, including yours, uh, as sort of inspirations. Yep. And we yep. use them throughout the book to offer all of these different perspectives from every different industry and every different uh, sort of identity. And so what's really unique about this book is it's not the effort of one or two experts who have the expertise in their head and are now imparting it through this book. This book is a celebration of, you know, 200 and more voices and a call to action for people on what it would take to celebrate all of those voices and create a world where all of those voices would be included. So that's what I'm really proud of, that this book is not just my perspective or Jennifer's perspective. This book is really so many different voices 
brought together, uh, which is kind of the point of the book to create this inclusive world. So we wanted to demonstrate that in the process of writing the book too. Yep. I love that. Using diversity to build a book about diversity. <laughs> it goes beyond <laughs> diversity. It's, uh, yeah. it's so interesting. I used to say that's very meta, but I don't know if I can even say that. I may have to Get, yeah, they uh, might have permission. stolen that word. It's kind of like <laughs> Forever. anybody who's Forever. named Alexa now is like, oh, man, yeah, what do I, what do, I do now? <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I, that's really cool. And thank you so much, Rohit, for doing this and, and, and joining joining us today and, and obviously writing this book. Really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me and having a chat. Thank you, Rohit. Always a pleasure to catch up uh, and obviously really excited about what you're up to. So thanks for joining. For those listeners out there, if you're enjoying the conversation and you learned something, please do share it with somebody. We hope that uh, our, our message flows through you. So please help us. Sharing is caring. Speaking of sharing, I want to, again, spread the word about a company we're excited about, Finmark. They came through our program last year, and uh, we feel like it can really help a number of the companies that are, are, are out there in the community, and hopefully it'll help you. Finmark is a financial planning software for startups for revenue forecasting, cash projections, and runway. So I think if you uh, are a member and you're listening and you're, you're kind of thinking about, oh, geez, I do that in Excel or something like that, you might want to check this out. All you have to do is go to Finmark, uh, which is over at, we'll give, you a th- we'll give actually a 30-day free trial on us. If you go to est.us forward slash Finmark, est.us forward slash Finmark and check it out. And I'm excited because our, our, the founder and CEO, Rami Assad, is going to be joining us down at the summit this year in Tampa. And he's going to be a speaker, mentor, and judge. And he's just a great individual and has had um, multiple companies and, and success. So I'm excited to have him joining us and sharing his knowledge with the rest of the community. Well, that does it for this episode. Remember, if you have a startup idea and you want to get it going, today is the best day to start up, not tomorrow, not the next day. Who knows? Something could happen. So get it going, iterate, and, uh, and get the ball rolling and you'll get there. So I also, in doing so, encourage you to join our community for access to support, expert advice, and resources that you need to elevate your startup by going simply to SOTY.link forward slash apply or startupofyear.com forward slash application. All right. Until next time, I'm Frank Gruber signing off. Thanks again for listening. I know it's the holiday season upon us. I hope everyone's out there having a good time and getting into the spirit, but be, be safe out there and uh, don't forget to call your loved ones. Uh, who are far away. If you haven't seen them in a while, they'll appreciate it. And I'm, I'm also going to, I want to wish you all uh, the best of luck and your future success in all of your ventures. Thanks for listening to the Startup of the Year podcast. Be sure to subscribe and we'll be back with another episode soon.